Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this episode on COVID-19. COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges over the past years. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2021 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these lessons learned into your practice as we all do our part in caring for our patients. Thank you for joining us for this educational session titled, Give It Your Best Shot, Evaluating COVID-19 Vaccine Best Practices. My name is Jamie Horniker, and I am clinical professor with the University of Wyoming School of Pharmacy and Family Medicine Residency Program in Casper, Wyoming. I'm very pleased to be joined by my co-presenter, Dr. Margie Padilla. Dr. Padilla is Clinical Associate Professor and Interprofessional Coordinator at the University of Texas at El Paso School of Pharmacy in El Paso, Texas. I think none of us are immune to the fact that COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant impact on our personal and professional lives. I want to point out that even since the submission of this presentation a couple of months ago, many advancements in the way we prevent and treat COVID-19 have occurred, including one of the most recent and exciting developments with the emergency use authorization of one of our COVID-19 vaccines in children ages five to 11. However, we are approximately two years into the global pandemic. And even though with this latest surge, new cases are declining and the number of deaths have plateaued and are decreasing, it's evidence that the pandemic is still far from over. We recognize that COVID-19 vaccines are one of the most important public health initiatives in battling the pandemic. Almost one year ago to the date, the first COVID-19 vaccine was approved for emergency use authorization has since gone on to receive FDA approval. Since that time, two additional vaccines were granted EUAs and are at various stages in the FDA approval process. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to date, more than 425 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine have been administered. Most recent data indicate that more than 193 million Americans, or approximately 58% of the population, are considered fully vaccinated and at least 222 million Americans have received at one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Despite the COVID-19 vaccine initiatives that immunized a large portion of Americans in early 2021, and ongoing efforts to continue to immunize the American public, we recognize that there is still much work to be done to improve vaccine confidence, which Dr. Padilla will discuss here in a little bit. I would like us to pause for a moment though and recognize how far we've come and the important role that pharmacists and pharmacy technicians have played in the COVID-19 pandemic. The federal government authorized the Federal Retail Pharmacy Program for COVID-19 vaccination to expand access to COVID-19 vaccines recognizing that pharmacies are readily accessible in many communities 
and pharmacists are the, one of the most accessible healthcare professionals. As of October 27th, over 152 million COVID-19 vaccine doses have been administered and reported by retail pharmacies, including 8 million doses in long-term care facilities. This represents over a third of COVID-19 vaccines that have been given by our community pharmacy colleagues. Additionally, with the Public Readiness and Emergency Prepared Act, or PREP Act declaration, the role of pharmacists, student pharmacist interns, and pharmacy technicians has been greatly expanded to increase access and utilization to COVID-19 vaccines, as well as other vaccines which are important to the public health of our communities. Additionally, they've authorized the increase in access to the COVID-19 monoclonal antibody treatments by pharmacists. There are numerous other examples of the importance of the pharmacy team in combating the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of us can identify these examples within our own practices that are worthy of recognition. I'd certainly like to encourage you to take the time to give yourself a pat on the back if you've been involved on the front lines of the pandemic or to recognize a colleague for a job well done regarding the important work we've all been doing during this pandemic. Additionally, I think it's important that we also reflect on how far we've yet to go. There is still work to be done in improving vaccine confidence and uptake. This is true, especially in areas like Wyoming, where I am from, which is one of the most under immunized states in the country certainly not something I'm proud to be known for. And there's definitely work to be done in our underserved populations where COVID-19 vax disparities are more pronounced. Also, while initiatives like the Federal Retail Pharmacy Program and the PREP Act have expanded roles in our profession, we must be very mindful of the impact this has on the prioritization and balance within the workplace considering these additional tasks and patient care encounters. Finally, research and knowledge about COVID-19 continues to evolve, and it's important that we are able to stay aware of these changes, especially as new vaccine approvals and treatments become available in fighting the pandemic. I wanted to transition, as Jimmy mentioned, and talk a little bit more about the different roles that we've taken as pharmacists in the last two years since the start of this pandemic. I also wanna to touch a little bit on um, the different kind of barriers, in particular barriers to misconceptions or misinformation, as well as vaccine hesitancy, where we're finding the most pushback as we continue to advocate uh, for vaccine health. So before I transition and talk about those barriers, as Jamie mentioned, we have been involved in so many aspects of COVID-19. And I wanna highlight, based on a literature review that captured uh, lots of roles that were occurring, I wanna highlight some of the great contributions that pharmacists are making and, and made in this past two years. These can be categorized into three themes. Um, and this was done on a literature review looking at all the scopes and practices and responsibilities of pharmacists around the world in the past um, two years. 
And they were broken down into these three, one being disease prevention and infection control, and I'll go more into detail into each one of these, adequate storage and drug supply, patient care and support for healthcare professionals. And when I talk about immunizations and the impact we've made with that, it falls more under the patient care and support for healthcare professionals. So when looking at disease prevention and infection control, pharmacists were involved in many aspects of this theme. Is looking through the literature, I just kind of wanted to summarize a few of the things that pharmacists were doing. So in addition to um, what we know with immunizations, we found within like the hospital setting, some of our pharmacists being involved with changes in workflow, for example. So do we need to adjust when the route and time of drug transportation to the hospital? Do we, didn't, do we need to designate um, elevators that are only designated for drug delivery? So those were kind of the decision-making that we found pharmacists involved when in and being critical in that process moving forward. They were also involved in allocation and distribution of surgical masks. You know, for a while there, um, it was hard to find. So pharmacists really stepped up to controlling that and making sure there's adequate allocation for the people that really needed to have those. So it was great to see that role rise for the pharmacist. And it was very evident that we had to transition to really utilizing technology. So it's not a surprise that we saw more of a maximization and utilization, some of the automation features. And if not, we used them at the full capacity to make sure that we can function and get the drugs to the right person in the right time in the right place. They were also involved with signage, for example, where to place, how to minimize crowds, but still make it efficient. When looking at adequate storage and drug supply, pharmacists were involved in several things. They were managing if medications were donated. They were looking at uh, what medications they had and making sure they were utilized when they needed to be utilized. Because I know for a while there, I know we were struggling about access to certain medications as they pertain to COVID-19. And for example, um, even looking at switches from intravenous to oral meds and vice versa intravenous to, to infusion or intravenous to push to address some of the drug shortages that we were definitely experiencing in this past year. And then our last theme, and this is the space that I'll spend a little bit more time in, we were really involved in that advocacy piece in developing an education, not just to our patients, our community, but also our providers. With information that was coming just so fast and ever-changing, we were having to continuously be providing this. I don't know how many times I must have changed a couple of my educational points to my patients because the information was just coming so rapidly um, and updating constantly. We also saw pharmacists really involved in the procurement of the immunizations themselves and administering immunizations. I think one thing I think about is if people didn't know we immunize, they do now. I remember as we were setting up a clinic, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, as we were setting up a vaccine clinic here at the university, people were asking us or making statements like, you vaccinate? Like, yes, we do. So if anything, this increased visibility, and now I believe that we're in the forefront of immunizations and thinking about if people have questions who to ask, and I know pharmacists are coming to the top of that list. So 
thank you pharmacists for everything that you've done to advance our profession during this very difficult time. And I wanted to acknowledge that it wasn't just immunizations, but that we also had other colleagues in other spaces within the hospital and community uh, making that impact. So transitioning to immunizations, what does the ideal pharmacist role? And I had to take a couple of thoughts and kind of step back and think about what different roles are there in the process and the different barriers that we had to overcome during that process. And I'm going to use the example of us starting a um, immunization clinic within a state funded university. And the reason for that was that our county uh, department for the El Paso area was understaffed and it could not roll out vaccines quickly. So the president of our university said, I think we can help in these efforts. And that's exactly what we did, but didn't realize all the uh, barriers and everything we'd have to overcome in thinking about setting up a clinic. We thought it'd be as simple as possible, but when you're working with a state agency, <laughs> you have to take legality into consideration and other things. So I kind of broken down into uh, some of the steps that this might've looked like. So when thinking about the immunization process itself, many of you may have been involved from administrative down to monitoring, but for most of it, most of us were probably helping with some aspect of that. So I wanted to take time to talk about those different roles and responsibilities that we saw pharmacists taking a, a lead on. So administrative function or infrastructure was definitely very important when thinking about developing your immunization clinics. Some of the barriers that we had is that with just everything going online, we really had to develop or think about technology in this process because not only were we needing to capture information rather quickly and fast, we needed to store that information as well. And we knew if we were doing paper, that would just labor, one, create more labor in that process, but also just kind of slow down that process. And we definitely wanted to eliminate some of those things. So we definitely incorporated our university IT team in helping us develop a, a simple technology platform and uh, that could help us meet the needs of entering information and kind of pre-screening. There was a lot of development of policies and procedures. I'm sure this is nothing new to those who are in an administrative role. In a space where that doesn't exist, we needed to have the ability to have those documents because we had to think about needle sticks. We had to think about the workflow and we had to define that well so others could understand that. And we did have a couple of needle sticks, you know, because we were utilizing our pharmacy students as our, our, ma our majority of our labor to help with the execution of administering the amount of vaccines that we had to administer as well as we developed an immunization manual that included the policies and procedures listed above, but also adverse event protocols because we were anticipating those and we did have some patients who had allergic reactions and also even just fainted down to fainting. And procuring the vaccine, because we had a lot of technicalities with the type of freezers, you know, how long um, we could have them out and not losing track of them, not losing product. I think one thing we took pride in is making sure that we didn't lose any product. And if we had any available that we were identifying teams or had uh, people on a backup list to be able to get those immunizations out to. And then of course, with Texas, we have an immunization registry that we also had not only for us to get all the drugs or everything, we had to make sure that was all inputted into that system before we could even get new inventory. So there was a lot before we could get started 
There were barriers, yes. And did the barriers continue throughout the process? Yes. But we had to just fine tune that process. And of course, you've got to train everybody that's helping you. And it wasn't just your clinical team, but in our space and in other spaces too, we have administrators that are not necessarily clinical, like those working technology, who also have to be trained to better understand how to support the process. And then of course, we were also looking at history and screening. And I know this, if many of you who were involved in the process, this changed quite a bit, right? With the rollout of newer vaccines, you know, we had it first for Pfizer, then Moderna, then J&J. So this kept getting updated. So we had to make sure we were consistently keeping with the most current format. That way we were screening appropriately um, for anything that needed to be screened prior to them receiving their immunization. Then um, there was a lot of education that was occurring and many of us have probably been a lot in this space, whether it be for advocacy of getting the vaccine and the importance of it, but more so, right, trying to address vaccine misconceptions. And it this is all has come about because of the, uh, the misinformation. I spend a lot of time on TikTok, not because I utilize it. It's actually not, it's, it's an interesting platform, but I utilize it to find out what kind of information is being relayed and how uh, people like to receive the information. And I have so many samples of misconceptions and trying to, you know, debunk all those things uh, is something that I've been working towards because um, it's important. And it's something as pharmacists, it's something we're, we're not as comfortable because I wasn't as comfortable at first. And you have to just keep practicing and uh, understand, you know, how and, and make a plan on how to address those misconceptions. And I'll talk a little bit more as um, we move into this presentation. We definitely have other roles as well as talking about mask use and social distancing. And then promotion of vaccines, as Jamie mentioned, to our high risk or vulnerable populations. Uh, we are predominantly a Hispanic population here in the El Paso area and we border uh, Mexico. So we also have a fluid coming in and out of our borders of people, including also other rural areas that don't have quick access to um, medicine or healthcare. So we had to kind of think about how do we get to those areas? I know that uh, many of our community pharmacy partners were really involved in creating pop-up tents and collaborating with many agencies and getting out to those places to address that, exactly that, and making sure that a certain inventory was left to make sure we could get to those vulnerable communities. And those are things that you can think about when you think about vaccine rollout and of course, education to providers. And then of course, in administration of the vaccine, not only just as pharmacists, but also with some of the new legislation, we were able, recent legislation, now our technicians were involved as well as students. I know um, with the emergency in the state of Texas, we were able to apply as a chief medical officer as a pharmacist for ordering vaccines. So we actually didn't have to have a standing order or anything like that or work under a physician. We were able to practice alone under our pharmacist license to be able to order vaccines without having to uh, get permission from someone else. So I know that was a, a big move, at least for Texas to allow that because we're usually uh, more conservative. So that um, allowed us to really uh, build the clinic that we needed in the university setting. Um, but the position we took and that we need to take uh, as we think about the ongoing pandemic, because it's going to be with us, it's endemic, um, 
is being vaccine champions, being vaccine leaders and providers and, and feeling comfortable in all those roles. Last but not least, counseling, just talking to our patients about the risk, the benefits, uh, and encouraging them to continue to immunize and addressing any concerns uh, related to safety or efficacy of the vaccine or misconceptions. Documentation was part of that process <laughs> where making sure that the information that you needed went into the registries, having those vaccination cards. I know we got a lot of vaccine passports and also documentation to virus or VARES for uh, any reactions to the vaccines. We did experience some uh, reactions that we did have to report, not only to our institution, but also um, to VARES. The great thing is that we had emergency on site. As that way it would take some of the liability from the pharmacist, but we have to be really creative about that process. The other thing that uh, many of us too have been involved in during this time is just even checking in with the patient. How are they doing and just building that continued trust that you've already established. Um, I know a lot of check-ins occurred um, because people weren't feeling as well. And I know also with the reporting, we were checking in also uh, through technology. We still need to continue that and remind people to come in if they're eligible for their third vaccine, to continue to prevention strategies because um, there's some areas in the nation that are still really uh, experiencing COVID while others are getting better. And so there's always education opportunities and needing to reinforce. So that in summary was the process that many of us were involved with when you think about immunization, whether it was from administration and just kind of setting it up and getting it going to the actual providing the vaccine. So many of us took many roles and within it, it looks very different for different settings, right? And it depends also on different states and what you're allowed to practice. And the example that I provided was just from Texas that tends to be a conservative state. The fact that we jumped on that opportunity, I think is the walkaway point. If you're in a position where you can do something, do it. This is a great time for us as pharmacists to really advocate for what we know we can do and um, advocate for the community that we care about. So we need to develop and talk about how do we develop this plan to address barriers in vaccines? And it's not easy. It's not a simple solution. I wanted to first begin with the definition of vaccine hesitancy, because I think it's important to take some time and think about this because I'm not sure, or at least for myself, when I thought about vaccine hesitancy, I didn't think of it in the different levels. I just kind of thought it's someone who's refusing it. And that was pretty simple of a definition that I would have given it, right? But vaccine hesitancy is a little more than that. And I wanted to spend a little bit of more time on this definition. This definition is coming from the World Health Organization. And it's defined as a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccine when indeed vaccine is available. And it just doesn't stop there. It goes on and says it's complex because it is varies across time, places, and the type of vaccines, and it's influenced by certain factors such as complacency, convenience, and confidence. I want to touch on those themes when you're thinking about vaccine hesitancy. So we know vaccine hesitancy is not simple, it's complex. And that's why we're having the issues that we're having, or at least why it feels like there's so much resistance, right? It's really just understanding what's at the bottom of the hesitancy. And as a reminder, Vaccine acceptance is a continuum. 
It's fairly easy for those who accept it. And there's very, very few who just refuse. But uh, those that are in the middle are still making decisions. And those are the people that we're mostly working with, right? Because if you refuse, you refuse because you're deeply passionate about it. But majority of the people that are hesitant do are right in the middle. And those are the, the clients or patients that we'll be working with. But it's a reminder that it's a continuum and it's not that simple. So I kind of wanted to touch on this case and we'll come back and just keep this person in mind. James, a 47-year-old woman with history of diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. She presents today with a referral for diabetes management with a pharmacist at a local health center. The provider noted that she has not received her COVID-19 vaccine. What will be your approach for this visit? So just keep this in mind as we start talking about uh, things that influence vaccine hesitancy. So let's go back to talking more a little bit about confidence, complacency, and convenience. I like to refer to them as a 3C model. When we think about confidence, the problem with confidence, the most obvious, at least that's been more evident with COVID-19, for example, has been safety and efficacy. I think that's been kind of the leading problem is, is this safe, is this effective? Because the rollout was so quick. And so a lot of fear went into that. It can also be a lack in confidence in a health system, right? So if your patient experienced something traumatic or mistrust, it's easy to say, I don't trust the system that's rolling that out. Or there can also be a lack of confidence those, for those who advocate for vaccines. And we have seen that. We have seen that with our policymakers, whether it be for one party or the other, we've just seen a lack of confidence based on the information that's given. So that is the problem. And how do we address it? Well, we educate patients about the safety and advocacy. We provide the science and we support that. And sometimes you can do that by yourself or you can do that in partnership. And I know that in the El Paso area, in addition to just the individual advocacy and to educate on safety and efficacy, we do work with other community members to try to reach a larger population by educating them on, hey, this is safe, this is efficacious, here's the data and kind of simplifying that for our community and making sure that it's bilingual. So that's confidence, okay? So vaccine hesitancy can be, uh, can be influenced by confidence, can be influenced by complacency. And I know we're seeing this more in our younger generation, I know at least for the El Paso region, it's this perception that they don't see themselves as being sick or being at risk for a vaccine preventable disease or that it's not that serious. And then let me give you an example. I had a colleague within um, the university who said, hey, you know what? It's not that bad. Uh, my family members got sick with COVID. It was really mild. You know, this is okay. I don't think, I think we're making a big deal out of this. And that was a great example of complacency and thinking about, wow, that, that's, that can be very dangerous because although we know that if it affects different people differently, it might've just been for that person, right? So there's a lot of those stories that get told. Also, if they're not seeing it, for example, with polio, well, it's not there. So it's gone. So why do I need it? Right? So it's, it's the idea that it's not there. So there's no need to vaccinate, right? So they don't see an importance of it. And so we get comfortable with the fact that uh, because of immunizations, uh, we have been kept from getting those severe illnesses, right? But uh, people don't see beyond that. And that's where you have to talk about that. And, and that's how you address it. You educate about 
the risk of that disease. And sometimes to address complacency, you have to do more of what we call motivational interviewing. And that takes sometimes several touch points to do that. And I'll talk about that because that in itself can be a whole different lecture or a whole different process, but at least some highlights of what it takes to take those steps in motivational interviewing. And then convenience. And we also know that this impacts how, it, or at least it impacts if we determine if we get the vaccine or not, right? How easy is the, vac is the vaccine accessible? The good thing is that we have a lot of pharmacies that are now 24 hours. We have mostly our pharmacists carrying the vaccines in the communities. Also, is there access to vaccines in these rural or areas? Is access to vaccines available in the language for the community that it's in or the person that needs the vaccine? So we address that by knowing your community, knowing their needs, really getting to understand how you can assist them and having these like pop-ups. And that's what I include by uh, flu clinics is the pop-ups. We had a lot of partners that we partnered up with to do pop-ups and go to those communities and have pharmacists, at least they could at least try to talk the language, if not have interpreters there, but making this effort to really go out and meet the people where they're at. And sometimes we do have to do that, especially with ongoing pandemics like this, where it debilitates or it really hurts populations for many reasons, right? So it's important that I think as pharmacists to, if we see that convenience is a factor that we try to address, well, how do we help our community? So those were the three C's, and those are influencers of vaccine hesitancy, but I also wanted to talk about determinants of vaccine hesitancies, because those also play a role, a big role, into vaccine hesitancy. So contextual influences um, are often something that's historically happened. <laughs> and for example, I can think about a couple of things. So probably more relevant to COVID, uh, I think about Dr. Fauci and how influential he has been, but that has caused so much either trust or mistrust in the information that's coming out. It depends who you speak to, right? But that in itself, there's a lot of patients who are coming in, well, Dr. Fauci said, I need to get this, or you know what, I don't like that Dr. Fauci, so I'm not gonna get this. So it can go either way. So that's a great example of something that's contextual right now that's impacting our community. There's also some historical influences. I have friends in the Asheville, North Carolina area that have a hard time getting patients to vaccinate or any kind of preventive uh, or even healthcare because of the Tuskegee trial and the mistrust that occurred with that. So those are very rooted there and you have to figure out, well, how do I get my patients to trust me with that huge history behind us, right? So that's one great example as well. Um, here in Texas, it, I remember um, we had one governor who said, we're gonna make HPV mandatory. And it was, and I remember being a part of that because I remember that one few days to a week that it was available, I was vaccinating everyone that I could with the HPV. Then he had to retract. Well, because of that, it created a lot of mistrust of government being involved in um, determining when uh, vaccines should be mandated or not. And that's still, it's funny, although that's historical, I, that's still very rooted. And I think it's some of the issues that we're still having in Texas with not mandating and things like that due to some of that had occurred previously. And, you know, uh, we have geographical barriers like where you're located, rural areas and access to those or even like perception of pharmaceutical industry, right? Because they have this idea that um, they're just doing it to get money. 
We also have individual and group influences. In the El Paso area, because we're predominantly Hispanic, we have looked at familism. And familism is, uh, we define it as, it's a, it's a family that makes decisions for even the individual. So if grandma had a great experience with the flu vaccine, then everybody's gonna have a great experience with the flu vaccine. Or if you just grew up as a family being very pro-vaccines, then the rest of family and generations that follow will also make those decisions for themselves. And also just, you know, a little bit about the culture here too. They also, generations tend to live within the household. So you have grandma, grandpa, and uncle, cousins, sometimes in the same household, but it's also in reverse. So for example, hey, I got sick two weeks after the flu. That's why I don't want to get it because it was the worst feeling in the world then we find that that information gets transferred to the rest of the family. And so now I'm having to work with the family and, you know, and trying to address those things. So you have just to uh, really understand your community uh, and the cultural influences that are there, uh, especially when it comes to uh, vaccines. I think in moving forward, that's probably one of the most important pieces is trying to understand where the hesitancy is coming from. And I have, I usually do work with families versus an individual for a lot of things and vaccines, definitely one of them. The next thing I wanted to talk about was vaccine specific influences. And this is actually more related to the vaccine or the process of the vaccination. So for example, something that's probably more valuable to today, what's happening with COVID is just how long it took for it to get released for emergency use. So these can create some mistrust or change perception as to they, if they wanna get the, the immunization itself. Also, for example, um, mode of administration, you know, people don't like vaccines. So in the instance of influenza, you know, now that it's available through the nose uh, as well, those are things and considerations that patients will make. And cost, you know, uh, for HPV, when it was extended for the 26 to 45 year old olds, but it was still wasn't being covered by um, the insurances, it was a hefty cost. And I know a lot for many, for that reason, weren't thinking about HPV. Those are examples of specific influences. So now that we understand the three C's and these other determinants of vaccine hesitancy, so having that in mind, how do you create a effective plan where you can meaningfully walk your patient from being scared or not wanting to, you know, actually receiving their vaccine? So there are a few strategies uh, we can utilize and we'll do our best in trying to create that process. So as a healthcare provider, we definitely want to support all the vaccines that have been recommended. I know the patients can see through, well, why not that one? And it can really open, as I say, can open Pandora's box once we start seeing optional. I think by saying these are the vaccines that you're due for changes that tone and how that patient will respond to you. So it's really important to support all recommended vaccines. And I know that that's been an issue here with healthcare providers not supporting the COVID-19 vaccine. And you can see that all through media. We also want to make sure that when we're recommending vaccines, that it's appropriate for that visit, that we're not talking about something that's probably not due. So for example, if you know they're due for that second dose of COVID vaccine, then take that opportunity to say, hey, you're due for the second vaccine. Or if it's a child and they're at the age of 11 and they have not yet received their HPV, then that's a perfect time to bring up 
that recommendation. You also want to remove yourself from showing priority or some kind of favoritism to one vaccine or other. I know there's been a lot of social media as far as Pfizer, especially COVID, Pfizer, uh, J&J, or Moderna, but try to keep uh, really non-biased in that approach and just make sure that you move them to get a vaccine right because we want coverage and protection and decreasing other bad outcomes. So in addressing vaccine hesitancy, there are some basic kind of general principles that I want to talk about. We want to first listen and actively listen, and that's kind of hard to do when we have so many things going on in multitasking, but to get to the root of that hesitancy, because we know it's a complex problem, as I mentioned before, we really have to take this time to actively listen and answer questions or any concerns that patients may have. And I, it's important to remember that immunizations are to remind the patient, you know, the immunizations are the foundation for preventive care. And really our goal is here is for them to prevent any kind of serious condition in the future, such as death or anything else that uh, may come that could be definitely prevented. We want to discuss and educate on the benefits of the vaccine. We want to make sure that it's just not, as I mentioned, especially in communities like El Paso, that we're educating the family as a whole. Because once you can bring the unit of whoever is in the household, then you start kind of building this bubble or this space of trust and confidence with the family members uh, in that, in that, uh, in, in, when talking about vaccines. And then we want to definitely, as ourselves, as, as providers, we want to review that immunization timeline. I know I have to go back to it every single time because especially with kids immunizations to try to figure out when's the appropriate time. So definitely knowledge is power and keeping up to date with vaccines. It's also very important to remain persistent and perseverant because it, it's not magical. It doesn't happen when, when you make that first recommendations. Studies have shown, um, Burstein and colleagues, have shown that when you remain persistent, you can have a up to 47% increase in vaccine acceptance after that first refusal, It's particular in parent populations. So this shows that it's important that although you get a no, don't you know let that go, continue to be persistent in that pursuit. So one strategy um, that I wanna talk about that I have had great success in is the participatory versus presumptive strategy. Participatory is defined as a conversational approach. So for example, do you want to vaccinate your child today? So it kind of leaves room for like, well, maybe not, right? Or what do you think about these vaccines? So it kind of leaves this wiggle room to have conversation where it could, if you don't do it well, it could go the wrong way. But the correct approach is taking a presumptive approach when thinking about vaccines. So, hey, today your child's due for two vaccines. We'll be giving the MMR and varicella. See how direct that was. It didn't leave any room for that conversation, but very stated matter-of-factly. Or it's time for your influenza vaccine. Your child is old enough to receive that. And we have both the nasal and the intramuscular, for example. It's really funny because when I think about my work at the Federally Qualified Community Health Centers, this was about 10 years ago, I had increased the vaccine rates for the center from zero to almost 90%. And I took a very presumptive approach without me even realizing that there was a theoretical framework behind it. So here I am years later sitting vaccines and thinking, oh, that's the approach I've been doing this entire time. I just don't 
really allow for that option, but more of a, hey, you're due for this. We're going to give it, which arm would you like to give it at? And that's the approach I took. So at a basic principle, this is where we can start at. And also studies here in this slide have shown that taking this approach has demonstrated a higher percentage of acceptance. So going back to the patient case, what will be our approach for today? So if we take this presumptive approach, we're gonna say, Ms. Monroe, you'll be receiving your first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine after today's visit because of your medical history. You have diabetes, hypertension, and the vaccine will help you prevent some serious illness from COVID-19 infection. So not only is it direct, concise, but you're also saying you need it because you've got diabetes and hypertension, so you've provided some great support. So that's a great example here. Now, what if, you've tried the presumptive approach, but she's still hesitant, then what's the approach? So there's two alternative strategies that you can use for refusal. One being the motivational interview that I talked about or the case approach. And I'll spend more time on the case approach than the motivational interviewing. With motivational interviewing, because this can take a couple of visits, but I did want to at least let you know the process of it and how it can help you. It's the illicit provide illicit approach. So it's a very patient-centered approach. And when you elicit, you wanna understand what the patient knows or what they wanna know about. So it's really spending that time and gathering that information. And then asking permission to offer information. That way you're just not interjecting and they see you as you're not even listening. So it's important to also make that statement of, hey, is it okay if I, I, I have some stuff that I can provide to add to that? You wanna provide information from a non-biased approach. So avoid using triggers such as I or you, but taking a very scientific, hey, this is what I found approach. And then after you've done that, you wanna assess if the patient's understanding of what you provided them and have them teach it back and determine if you choose to additionally do any more. And that's usually kind of the approach to the motivational interviewing, but there's more, right? And I've provided some resources here from Immunize Colorado, who has a great presentation on how to do motivational interviewing. But I did want to spend a little bit more time on the case approach because I feel that you can do this at any setting and even at a one-time point, if possible. So case stands for corroborate about me, science, explain, and advice. When you corroborate as a pharmacist, you acknowledge that there's a concern. You acknowledge the patient's concern. And you definitely want to express that there's understanding and you don't make them feel alone like, oh, I, yeah, I don't know what you feel on that. You know, that's the last thing you want to do. You want to make sure you're empathetic with what's being expressed to you. And I'll give an example of that. Then you want to transition to talking about the things that you've done. So as a pharmacist, you might provide updates on some of the literature findings that you've looked at or the information that you have found about the risks and benefits of the vaccine. So you've taken to a little bit how you've personalized it for yourself. Then the science is, hey, this is the information. These are the stats in a simplified way, right? So now you're adding to that supportive statement after listening to your patient. And then explanation advice. So now the pharmacist discusses why they feel strongly about the need to vaccinate and why they believe it's the best option for the patient currently. So what does this look like when we put it together? All right, so I don't want my son to get the MMR vaccine. I've heard that it causes autism. I can understand your concern. I wouldn't want my child to receive the MMR vaccine if it caused autism. So yeah, and it's true, you wouldn't want to. So that's corroborating and creating that trust and saying, 
okay, yeah, I, your concern is valid. I would feel the same way too. And then the about me would be, well, I've been researching MMR causing autism for many years because I also have three kids. So I make that personal because I have three children. So it's an easy conversation for me to have. Additionally, I'd have to be trying to better understand the cause of autism. So in providing kind of the things I've done personally, and then the science is, well, um, there's many large studies that have shown that MMR vaccine does not cause autism. As a matter of fact, it began with a man named Wakefield who fabricated the data about the MMR and autism connection. So he was, his medical license was removed, his study was retracted or removed, and additional studies about autism show that children who are going to get autism display that long before they even received the MMR vaccine. So that's a great example of like bringing in the science, but very simplified for them to understand and making that decision. So when you explain an advice, then you say, you know, we both want our kids to be healthy. So choosing not to get the MMR vaccine will not protect your child from getting autism. I know there's a fear, but it also won't prevent them from getting it. And that's important to, to distinguish those things and will leave your child at a risk, at a high risk for developing a disease that can result in hospitalization or worse. And so I urge you to get your child to get your MMR vaccine as I've done for my kids. So that's an example of how to use CASE. CASE can address many of the more difficult things, right? But most of the concerns that you might find is in the multiple vaccines, the fear of autism, as I mentioned, and utilizes an example. Vaccine additives, uh, the content of formaldehyde. And then I always use the, the example of, do you realize the pear, the pear, the fruit has more formaldehyde than the vaccine does? And that's usually like, whoa, <laughs> right? So kind of bringing those back to where um, it's not a misconception. A lot of questions on short-term and long-term adverse events, uh, whether it hurts. And as I talked about things that have disappeared that they no longer see anymore. More related to COVID, we have started seeing very general concerns as far as what's FDA approved, what's not. I know a lot of people were waiting for things to move to FDA approval from the emergency use designation. We talked about studies being too short, you know, these phases. Other things such as microchipping or natural immunity is enough or religious. I know religious was definitely something that impacted our community with J&J, &J, but once we had the blessing uh, from the church themselves that was quickly resolved. And these are just some examples that have come because of COVID and just the process that it took to get the vaccine so quickly into emergency use. So in summary, we need to be extremely proactive and have an established elevator speech. You know, I do, and it takes practice and practice to be able to accomplish that. And always remember that it's a two-way communication in order for you to make a great impact, you also have to be a great listener. Although we are providing a lot of educational standpoints, it's not enough to ensure change. And we know that it's just the starting place. That's why things like motivational interviewing can be helpful in continuing those conversations and moving into a place where they make those decisions to change. Thank you so much for joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official or wherever you listen to your podcast and check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all that you do.